Welcome to Demystifying Science. Today on the show, we have Dr. Julian Barber, who is a physicist from Great Britain. And normally when we think about physics, we think about explaining phenomena that occurs between a limited set of material bodies. But today we're going to be talking about something meta. Interactions between all of the material bodies all at once, all of those interactions that have ever been and ever will be talking about the story of the universe. And so my first question for you, Dr. Barber, is how did you decide that you were going to devote your life to explaining something as big as everything? It was a chance reading of a newspaper article in Germany um, back in 1963. And I was studying at that stage to be an astrophysicist because I'd got very fascinated with astronomy at the age of 10. So it was my firm intention to um, become an astrophysicist. Uh, but I was also getting very interested in, in really basic questions in physics, above all Einstein's marvelous theory of general relativity. Uh, so I, I was interested in that. And then um, I just happened to read an article in the Munich newspaper based on the one and only popular science article that Paul Dirac, who was this great British physicist who had been a major, one of the major creators of quantum mechanics in mm. the 1920s and 1930s. And he had published this article in the May 1963 edition of the Scientific American. And in it, he reported his study of the dynamical structure of general relativity. In, in general relativity, you normally just have what's called the, 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 the block universe picture, where, where the universe sort of, here's the past and here's the future, and it goes up there. And it's all like, as it were, a block of ice. And our own life is a, is a sort of a curve going up through it. Now... What Dirac did was actually study exactly how each slice, as it were, in this space-time changes, how, how it wiggles and, and, and changes its structure. And in the course of doing that, he came to what he found was very surprising, that, um, first of all, uh, the space-time picture that Einstein had, had created uh, didn't seem to be the best way to describe what actually happens, how things change. Um, and he, the way he, he did it, uh, the way he reformulated it, had, was being done at the same time by three American physicists as well, Arnovit, Deser, and Misner. But he drew much more dramatic conclusions from it than they did. Uh, he, he decided, he came to the conclusion that Four-dimensional symmetry is not a fundamental property of the physical world. So basically, in, in space-time, in this thing, it's like a loaf of bread. And you can imagine, in Einstein's theory, cutting it in any way you like. And it doesn't even have to be a straight cut. It can be wiggly like that. And each cut like that defines a simultaneity. That's a nominal definition of what you mean by simultaneity. And... Dirac came to the conclusion that if you want to express Einstein's theory in the simplest way possible, 
to describe it with the equations when they take the simplest form, it's actually better to introduce what looks like a, a notion of simultaneity. Uh, and a flat cut. A flat cut, so to speak, yes. And this was completely at odds. Now, he did that uh, basically for a universe which is flat at spatial infinity. So it isn't a universe that closes up on itself uh, like the surface of the Earth does in two dimensions. Uh, so there's, there's basically two main possibilities of, of what space, well, three, but as regards whether it's closed up or not, there are two. Either it's closed up like the surface of the Earth in two dimensions, that's it's closed up in three, or it can go on forever and be infinite. And uh, Dirac worked in the case when it goes on out to infinity and, in fact, becomes flat out as you go out to infinity. Um, but he, nevertheless, it was a very dramatic thing. So when I read that, I thought, well, the next morning I woke up and I said, well, if Dirac says such a radical thing and he doesn't really believe in space-time symmetry anymore, what does that tell us about time? Should we perhaps start thinking about what time is? So that's how it all started with me back in 1963. And I'm still thinking about time for the day. And the ideas are changing. They've been developing all the time. Dirac was brilliant. He, he got his ideas and worked them out in, you know, a few months, if that. Um, it's taken me now close on eight, 60 years to get to where I am now. And I'm not sure I think th I have the feeling that things still could develop a bit more. So let's talk a little bit about your ideas. Typically, when we've heard stories of the universe, and I love how in your book you mention how stories are perhaps a more real way of apprehending nature than anything else. We usually think about a birth and a death. There's, we talk about you know the Big Bang or the heat death of the universe. We we almost it's almost as if as humans we're trying to map our own experiences in the universe onto the whole universe itself. But it seems like you apprehend it a little differently. You kind of imagine this universe that's in perpetual oscillation between these two uh, these two forms of of order and chaos, and that they pass through this reversal point which is the title of your book, The Janus Points. That's, that's one possibility. I should, uh, uh, I'm actually, in the course of the book, you may have noticed I actually get to a, a slightly different position. So basically, the, the, the title of the book comes from, first of all, the fact that it's been known in Newton's theory of gravity for since 1772. So basically, if the energy is not negative, so it can be either exactly zero, which is much the most interesting case if you're talking about the whole universe, or it can be positive. And there's a quantity called the moment of inertia, which measures the size of the universe. And it's what was discovered in 1772 is that in the distant past, that quantity is infinitely great in its sort of Newtonian time in the distant past. And then as time goes on, it gets smaller and smaller, and then it reaches a minimum value, and then it grows again up to infinity. Like a pendulum. Uh, 
Well, it's it, it's a pendulum it's only, without friction. It's only one swing of a pendulum. Mm. Hmm. So it doesn't. It, goes, it, it won't return. No, no. It goes. It it it, it won't return. No. Uh, so th- so that's that's what happens. So that's what I call a Janus point. Now, what's much more interesting? Now, first of all, talking about the size of the universe really is, presumes that there's a ruler outside it, and and mm. Newton really did a did put in, so to speak, an absolute ruler because he had what he called absolute space, and that included a notion of absolute size. But that is actually ridiculous because we're inside the universe. We can't grab hold. I mean, I, I can pick up a ruler, which is a physical object in, in the universe, and, and I can measure how big my screen is and things like that. So size has to compare two objects, one to another, essentially. That are within the universe. So... Um, and the universe, by the way, that's that's everything in existence and all of the relationships between it. Existence. So, uh, what I my way that I think about the universe, and I'm not alone in thinking this way, is you could imagine a two dimensional one, which is like the surface of the Earth, and there would be uh, lots of creepy crawlies. <laughs> Let's say there's just Earth and it's smooth. There's lots of creepy crawlies wandering over that spherical surface uh, and and what when you look at it it just seems to change it it's the, there's a, you see a different pattern you see a different picture so my main insight uh, that i came to was that if we didn't see things change we would never have come to the idea that time exists of course yeah so uh that's that was my insight. Now, what I didn't know when I started thinking along these lines, but I discovered it quite soon, was that I was by no means the first person who thought along those lines. Um, but, but, but before we before we go into that, I'm interested in how you came to this. But is the Janus point the moment when that time can no longer set, like there is no change? Is it something like that where there is no change? No, no, no. Okay. I should set say- me straight. Yeah, let me say the Janus point idea came to me and my collaborators uh, only in uh, only nine years ago. So this was was nearly fifty years. Well, almost exactly fifty years since I started thinking about these things. So that's really quite a late development. But before we get to that, when 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 we ask about what time is, it, it derives from change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's there now. Ernst Mach, who is the person who after whom the Mach numbers are named, he was a great experimental physicist, but he was also a philosopher of science, and he said it is utterly impossible to measure the changes of things by time. Quite the contrary, time is an abstraction at which we arrive from the changes of things, mm-hmm. and that's quite clear at the most obvious level. You have to see where the hands of the clock have moved to see how time is passing. So you see, actually see the clock seemingly going backwards. At least that's how I see it. Uh, but um, so time is a comparison of motions. A t- a time is a time is a, so to speak, a measure of motion. It it it's 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 the um, at the deepest sense. It's you could say it's the amount that the universe has changed. It's the difference between 
the shape of the universe at one instant and it's at a later at another instant which can be later and why does reimagining time in this way create a shift in our understanding of the universe it's just part of an overall story uh basically it 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 actually tends to get rid of change altogether the the analogy here is with a movie so in the old days when you had a a, a strip of whatever it was what was it, what's the material called anyway cellophane or something like that that the strips like that so you have each still is is on one of these things so um if you were to cut that movie the physical thing into its individual stills you could and they would be frozen there forever and then you could you'd have a heap of those stills you could mix them all up and a child could come along and put them in the correct order now if that child has lived as hard working child <laughs> you what a very hard working child perhaps <laughs> it would be hard work but it's 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 not difficult and if if the if the film was just of a triangle that was changing its shape in a fairly regular way it wouldn't be difficult to do it as i mentioned in my book my grandson of 6 years old could do it um so so basically this is suggesting that time itself doesn't exist all that exists is so to speak snapshots of the universe or or frozen individual states of the universe but so they're causally how... connected to each other right and so when you when you talk about the film strip that you cut up there's this there's this ability to 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 pluck something out of a sequence and then to be able to kind of mix them all together and put them on the table but the way that the way that we experience reality is that you cannot actually take any one event out of time so to speak well, well, well we we can't do that i should say that that idea that there's a continuous sequence as in a movie is in what's called classical physics when you get into quantum mechanics <laughs> things get much more complicated and it's not so so clear that you can do that hmm. um so so basically you there's a lot of suggestion that in some senses the universe if you really think about it properly is timeless there isn't there isn't a river of time that is flowing independently of what is what is going on you you, you should think of it more like that heap of snapshots but there is there is like uh dr benberry is saying there there seems to be this idea that the universe isn't just the material in it it's also the relationships between all of the subunits and those relationships because this causality have a particular order that makes the most sense which is the one that we perceive i assume well it uh, Are you talking about the universe at one instant or the universe at different instants? Yeah, I'm talking about I guess I'm talking about the story of what the universe is and where it's come from and where it's going and just what's happening really. I mean, um it's very difficult. I find talking about the universe extremely difficult because it's how how can we apprehend everything all at once, you know? It's just such an enormous concept. Um 
it's very it's very hard for me to see how talking about everything all at once is different from talking about nothing all at once. It's so well, total. Well, no, the I think you can, and you can already do it with the simplest non-trivial model in, in dynamics, which is of three bodies interacting with each other in Newtonian gravity. At each instant, they form a triangle. Now, I've said that there's no ruler outside the system, so you just have shapes of triangles. That's but there's, and there's a particular procession of that shape, right? There's an order in which the, there's a way... Like if you the know the shape of the triangle at any given moment and you know something about the bodies that are in that triangle, you can say what the triangle looks like leading to this moment and what it will look like a few moments from now. Well, in, in, in Newton's theory, you need to know how it's changing. What, mm. what, so you need to know the triangle now and you need to know the, the way it is changing. So its, it's shape is changing. Mm. Then in, in Newtonian classical theory, you're home and dried. You you can predict the whole future from then on, uh, or the past. So that's that's the standard classical picture, which was all very reassuring in in, in most ways. It seemed to make a sense, but it's a bit deterministic. It seems to suggest it was all fixed in the past and so forth. Now, quantum mechanics offers a, a much richer possibility um, that not necessarily all things arranged line up in a in a line like that or in a continuous history so th th there's a there's a difference there um the idea that time is very much a human construct makes a lot of sense to me and that you obviously have to have a before and an after that you have a memory of to compare to even get a notion of time itself so i can kind of see what the idea that perhaps a stack of shapes is ordered by our own experience my question is still trying to understand this Janus point idea that there are reversals in the way that things flow. It, can can you orient us to this ah, concept yes. well, a bit? Yeah, well, we got we got distracted in a way. So we love to do that. All I was talking about was how the size goes from the Newtonian size, which anyway we can't observe within the universe, goes from infinitely great down to a finite value, and then it grows again. But much more interesting is how the shape changes. That, that, so, and that, that was the energy, right? That was the motion in all this material, right? That was the... Well, that, that's, in, in Newtonian terms, the, <clears throat> the energy has to be, to have exact that result, the energy must not be negative. But actually something very similar happens often when it is negative, but that's a minor issue. The, the thing that is much more interesting is what is the shape of the system? So typically, if you have lots of particles interacting through gravity, when you come to this Janus point, the lowest point, at that point, the particles are behaving more or less like a swarm of bees. Mm. They've got a uniform distribution and they're moving in all directions randomly. As you go away in either direction from it, the motion gets much more ordered. You find that clusters form and in particular, very often, there are clusters which are just two particles, which I call Kepler pairs because they're obeying Kepler's sec uh, laws of motion, in planetary motion. Those two particles go around each other in a very regular way, and they then act actually as a clock. And all of these pairs that form 
as you go away in both directions from that Janus point, they behave like a, a clock that keep very good time because they're all marching in step. They're all keeping, so to speak, the same time. And these create and sort of helices uh, throughout time, it seems like, uh, looking at one of your figures. They're sort of like helices, the way that you show them uh, um, plotted against time in your book, it seems like. Well, that's yes, that's because of I'm showing them in uh, on the page that's meant to represent a different instance of time in the normal way we think about time. But at any at any instant that they're just two two particles like that. Uh, but you can think of them as going round. So the background you see of my study is the rest of the universe, so to speak, and you can see those two particles moving relative to there. To get a better picture of what the universe is really like, you should see all sorts of creatures behind me flying around in different directions. But out there, way behind me, there would be also things going on. And this is exactly what we see in the universe. There are lots and lots of stars, double stars, triple stars, going around each other throughout the entire universe. And but which side are these? Are these at the far ends of the graph? These uh, ordered structures are, are at the yeah, so extremes. These, these, are, these are at either end of the thing there. Yeah. And is so, that is the Janus point idea just that that is that continues like that? There's an oscillation between these different moments. No, 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 no. no, no but you you should just think of them as as a, as a static picture once and for all. Mm. And the the thing about that is that there's. The direction of time is determined by how it, the universe gets more structured. So in some senses, each half of, if that is what the history of the universe is, and by the way, I'm changing my views on that. There's actually a more interesting possibility, which is not like that, which I also put into the book. And I'm getting more and more interested in and think that's serious. Mm. The the point of the reason why I think the Janus point is is a is a valid thing is that it completely changes the ideas of why there is a direction of time, why we think time flows in one direction, which is always this is to do with entropy and heat death. And that has been a, a mystery because the laws of physics, the known laws of physics, don't distinguish a direction of time. They work equally well going that way or that way. There's nothing in it. But then the question arises is why do all the phenomena we see in nature appear to go in one direction? Like our own why lives. Do all, why do we all get older together or, and in the same direction as the stars? We never meet anyone getting younger and so forth. So this has been explained this is the famous second law of thermodynamics, and the only explanation that it existed, I would like to claim until my collaborators and I published this paper in, in, in the Physical Review Letters in 2014, was that the universe had begun in a very special way that could not be explained by the known laws of nature. You had to add on to the known laws of nature something called the past hypothesis, saying for some unknown reason the universe began in a very special way. And what our paper showed was that you can get an arrow of time which does not require anything to be added to the laws of nature, because that behavior I've described of that curve, but much more significantly, the way that at the Janus point, 
the particles are all moving randomly, like in a swarm of bees, rather uniformly. But as you go out in both directions, it gets ordered. That is a direct consequence of Newton's laws. It's nothing to do with entropy and thermodynamical properties. Now, that are those time, genus points happening everywhere all the time, or is 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 it in time? That, that that, that's just in this model. It's just once in the history of the universe. So mm. you can think of the universe as having a great long timeline. And there's just one point where it's, it's most uniform. So there's and still a beginning and an end. In either direction from it, it's getting more complicated, more structured. And we've got to be on one side or the other. We can't be on both sides at once. Sure. So Does it still have side? a birth and a death? The, the universe still has a birth and death there? Well, in that picture, it, 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 has, it, has, a, it has a birth and it doesn't have a death because it goes on forever in 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 our picture that in the, the, the there it it has it has one birth but two lives mm. <laughs> it, it, it has two they're not identical they're not mirror images of each other but they look basically similar okay so you have a point of complexity that the universe is in and then it moves towards this genus point which is entropic in nature and then it rises no 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 sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, no no please 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 i'm trying i'm trying to understand so so if well, if, if the genus point is disordered it's not a state of high entropy in i my I think we'd better say a little bit about entropy and, and thermodynamics. Sure. So entropy and thermodynamics were discovered from the study of steam engines. Mm. There's a very wonderful little book written by a Frenchman called Sardi Carno, published in 1825, where he showed how you make a steam engine that is more efficient than any other possible steam engine. And that was what 25 years later led to the discovery of the laws of thermodynamics. But the key thing about a steam engine is that the steam must remain in a cylinder. Mm. Effectively, it's got to be in a box. Mm. Uh, so basically what happens is you have a furnace that heats up the steam, it expands, then you have to pour cold water onto the cylinder from the outside to cool it down so that you can compress it again. But the steam remains in the box. And the whole of thermodynamics and the notion of entropy was developed using the idea of a system in a box. Mm. And nobody in any of the books or papers that I've read have said, how has the situation changed? At least I haven't seriously questioned. How has the situation changed if the system is not in a box? Mm. Now, people say the universe is expanding is it, is it in a box? Where are the walls? Well, there are some ideas about that in modern cosmology, but they're speculative. Uh, and they're not really real walls anyway. So that just changes the story. You have to think about things in a quite different way. And in this situation... Could, couldn't it be closed without being in a box, though? Because if there's no external material, then you can't lose any motion to external material. You can't lose energy to it. Yeah, like if we're talking about everything that exists, there's nothing outside of everything that exists, and so it creates a border for the system, even though there's no, no box. No, the, 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 the key thing is that it, it can, in the normal way of thinking where you think there's a ruler, it can go on expanding forever. That there isn't there isn't a box, and it's the 
in the normal story with entropy is you imagine you've got a whole lot of molecules in a box mm. and at an initial time they're all down in the in one corner of the box mm. which is the so it, it, that's the sort and, of the ordered state. state they're all that's a special state yes. because they're all in one corner of the box is, and, and then but they're all moving around in that corner that's so where we're soon, at so very soon they spread out they hit the walls of the box bounce off it they bounce off each other and very soon they're spread out uniformly in the box and then you can wait for trillions and trillions and trillions of years they'll they might eventually come back down to that corner but not in anyone's lifetime and that spreading out and becoming uniform is the growth of entropy the, it's called the growth of disorder because mm. you've gone from an ordered state and that and i'm just saying this is completely inappropriate for thinking about the universe that's not that I don't think that the fact is thermodynamics was discovered 80 years before the expansion of the universe was discovered and I don't think people adjusted their thinking to the new reality that the universe doesn't seem to be in a box and anyway they didn't have much idea what the universe was like anyway in the 19th century and and so if we're talking about the janus points so if if we if we talk about the gas in the box you start at this ordered point and the gas expands throughout the box and so you go from a state of low entropy to a state of high entropy and you're you're saying that it's possible to think about that in the context of the box because it is this very controlled system where there's no ability to leave it and when we talk about the janus point you say that it is you you imagine it as being this point of of a swarm of bees which is a very that what i'm trying what i'm trying to ask is if that's not entropy then what is that disorder well, you, you if at that instant you could put a box around it sure and 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 so that so that if you put a, if you put a box around that swarm of bees then you've got a, a length and mm. then you can then you can define entropy but you actually have to have that box there to define entropy well, so if i was an anthropologist but, traveling or a scientist traveling through time and i had you know i had a magic box and i could and i could just take a, a box of of a, th a three-dimensional box and look at it the difference between the the sample of the three-dimensional box at the janus point versus the three-dimensional box at the point that we are right now would be that there's an increase in complexity that complexity comes... Complexity is the key. And he uses this new word in his book called entaxi, I believe, which is That's su right. supposed yes. to be well, a substitute for exactly address this well, concept. It, it, it's, it's just to emphasize that in a system which, in the normal way of thinking of it, can expand freely, you just you have to overturn, completely think in the opposite way. Because so rather than tending towards greater disorder, it appears to tend towards greater order, right? Because people talk about the heat death of the universe, which is supposed to end in everything being disordered and cold, but that doesn't seem to be what we see when we look out into the stars or into the heavens or into ourselves. We see exquisite order. Yeah, yes. Well, that's that, that's all. People argue that that is compatible with the laws of thermodynamics, but I think... I think they, I think I don't really trust the arguments. I don't think they're really sound when you look at them. But the what are the arguments that would suggest that it is compatible? Well, there's a lot of energy going into a human being. I guess is one way to put it, right? There, if you if you force a system, you can create order into it. And well, the, if, there's also I've also heard a really cool idea that humans are creating entropy elsewhere at a greater rate than 
otherwise. And so that is sort of a downhill thermodynamic well, process. Yes, well, that, so the, the story that they go says that the universe is never, is never really at its maximum entropy. Uh, so that uh, let's go back to those molecules in the in the corner of the box. If you had uh, some a smaller box in, enclosing those things, but it was not a rigid box, and those molecules at a fairly high temperature, so they would be exerting quite a pressure, they would make that little box expand. It will be doing some work. And that's because there's what's called free energy in the system. It's not yet all the all the energy that is in this, those moving molecules has not yet spread out into the big box so that they can still do some work. There's what's called free energy. So this is really how the standard explanation for the stars and, and what we see in all the structure in the universe is based on that argument. But it presupposes that there's a meaningful way to define entropy for the whole universe. And that's what I challenge. That's why it's so hard to talk about the universe. It's just so all-encompassing. It's, uh, it's really difficult. One, one idea that I had, though, well, when well, I was... Just, just think about triangles. There's a, there's a model universe. Tiny universes three are part, much easier. Three part, three, three part. atoms, yeah. I can handle three atoms at a time. Yeah, yeah you can handle... And that's enough, that's enough for, that's enough for uh, a model universe. So it's if we just think about three atoms for a second, one idea to contain them would be a box. Another way to contain them would just be to tie them all together. And this kind of gets into the Machian stuff, and I always loved Mach. I'm, uh, one of the reasons that you came to my attention was one of our listeners uh, who knew that I was way into Mach mentioned that you ad address a lot of, uh, you have a lot of reverence for Mach in your writing. And Mach talks about this universe as if the totality of all the material is informing the inertial motion of other, of individual bodies. It's almost like everything's connected together. And so it seems, what do you think about the idea that perhaps things being connected could serve to rescue us from the need for a box in terms of defining why there's this oscillatory ent entropy? Well, well, first of all, uh, Mach's principle, which uh, I think um, my collaborator Bruno Bertotti and I actually showed how it works. I mean, that is a recognized paper that we published in 1982. I mean, it does literally show how inertial frames of reference arise from the motion of all the particles in the universe or all mm. the matter in the universe. And by the way, uh, that sort of explanation is present within in, in, in a space in, the, in general relativity. It's present in a very beautiful form, which was completely unaware. Einstein was completely unaware of the fact that he had actually implemented Mach's principle it, for a spatially closed universe. It, mm. it, it is there. Um, but that's that's still not going to create a box. I guess what I'm thinking is that the particles, if they're actually, or the atoms or whatever, if they're all actually tethered to one another, then they can only go so far before they have to come back together again. It it really it really creates well, that, its own that, that, boundary. That's, that's a system. That is a system which has got negative energy. Uh, we're we're getting into a bit. Complicating, but let me go back to the box and say what's the difference when there is no box. So if you have, suppose let's have let's have those molecules in that box, 
in space somewhere and they're, they're moving around in that box and, and nothing in, so they're all bouncing around. And now just imagine that suddenly the, the walls of the box are, are removed. The motion that then follows is completely and utterly different. The particles go off, each of them basically very soon is moving inertially and they go off and they spread out like that. And the law that is describing how any two particles separate is exactly Hubble's law for the expansion of the universe. That is an extremely ordered motion. And it is completely different once you take the box away. And, and, it, so and this, if, the, this but if, if, the, people... if the particles are connected, though, you would expect it to reverse itself at some point. If, the, if they're elastically well, connected, then they should reverse their well, motion. Those, those are, that corresponds to a model of a recontracting universe, which is a solution of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Mm. But the evidence at the moment from cosmology is that the universe is actually, even ex its expansion is actually accelerating. So that it doesn't look as if it's going to come back again. Interesting. So if, if it doesn't come back again, the... What does that mean for the complexity that exists at the point where where we occupy the universe? Well, I would well first of all, strictly speaking, the complexity we've only been able to define for when we're talking about point particles. And in general relativity, you talk about fields, which are continuous distributions, and that's that's actually work in progress. We may not be able to extend our ideas to that completely satisfactorily, but Newton's theory is a very good approximation to Einstein's theory. Certainly, the universe looks, as of now, as I see a backdrop behind you of what looks like the Hubble Space Telescope's work. Yeah, that's um, our window. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes. Uh, that is, um, that's basically the sort of picture that our Newtonian model is predicting. So I have some confidence in it. Mm. In that it might be superior to the relativistic formulations or? No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I can, as of now, I have no reason to question Einstein's general theory of relativity. It has passed every conceivable test that could be thrown at it. It's absolutely marvelous. It is, in fact, in the way we interpret it from a Machian point of view, marvelously Machian, relational, if it is spatially closed up on itself. Uh, so, so that's very good. It certainly has got to be, it's got to be, unified with quantum mechanics and and that is a huge task which has not yet been resolved at all it, it's it's an ongoing i mean 60 years people have been trying very hard to unify einstein's theory with quantum mechanics and so far there's no definitive solution there are interesting steps that have been made it's um, it's interesting how sp something being spatially closed also seems to signal an interconnection as well because you could return to the same point by following the connectivity node. It's, it seems very Machian to me at the same time. Yeah, well, I just prefer to think of a finite number. I mean, my model is, uh, as of now, 
because it is so crystal clear, is just a finite number of particles in Euclidean space. So what were some of the other alternatives that you mentioned that you're playing with in terms of how... Oh, well, the, the other alternative is that there are very, very interesting solutions of Einstein, of, sorry, Newton's theory, which don't have a Janus point. They actually start with what I call a total explosion. So what people, what people realized, and this is over a hundred over a hundred years ago, they, mathematicians realized it, very clever mathematicians, that you can start a, a system of Newtonian particles, point particles, a finite number of them, and they can go off and they can be obeying Newton's laws. And then in a very wonderful way, it's, it's a very excep exceptional solution in Newton's theory, but it is possible that they all come together and collide together at one instant altogether at their common center of mass. And that is called a total collision. Hmm. And if you, but because Newton's theory is symmetric with respect to the direction of time, it's what you call time reversal symmetric. You can just reverse that motion and then you have a total explosion. So this is, this is a system which begins with in the normal way of thinking about it, with zero size, and all the particles just come out. And there's very interesting things about it. First of all, there mustn't be any rotation in the system. It must have what's called vanishing angular momentum. So that's a very Machian condition. That, that's the thing there. It can, have any, it, it can have any energy, but it can also have zero energy. And that's the most interesting thing. But what is really interesting about these solutions is that this quantity which we call the complexity, which is a very, very interesting mathematical quantity, has its absolute minimum value when it starts. It starts with the most uniform state that the universe can have, this, un this model universe, and then it just gets more and more complicated. So it's, it's very like half of that Janus point solution. It's only one half of it. But instead of it being like a swarm of bees at the Janus point, at that point, it's, it's a very, very uniform thing. And it can almost, if there's a huge number of particles, they can it can almost look like a crystal lattice where they're all arranged. It's, it's, they're absolutely marvelous, these special solutions. They start off like a perfect sphere with the particles very uniformly distributed within, with a very uniform distribution. And very, very remarkable solutions. I, was, I think this is... How is, how so is this distinct from the Big Bang? It's very like the Big Bang. Mm. How did they and get arranged fact, that way in the first place? You what? How did the crystal get formed in the first place? I would, no, no, it's just there. How do you get formed? Well, well I, when a man we, loves we, a woman. That's, that's, that's the ultimate mystery why anything is here. That's I asked my parents, mystery. but they wouldn't tell me. But, but the, the, uh, the, when you get older. Uh, Newton's theory says this is a solution of his equations. That makes sense. I, I, it does beg and, and it's in, And it, it's interesting. It These does seem like we started the story. It starts the story in media res, though. It's like... You know, I, I, I do wonder... But does it, is it, isn't the question upstream of that, of why there is something rather than nothing? 
Well, right, because isn't that isn't that the isn't that the primary question? Because if you have to assume something, that, but something with a particular configuration. Well, uh, over I, long enough timescales, can't you occupy any configuration? Yeah, but if this is supposed to be the first points, why why are there no points before this? Yeah, so there's no points before this. This isn't something that that there's, material. There's, there's, there's no change. Well, well, there's a very nice way of thinking about this, which is closely related to this. Uh, can you think of any triangle which is special? Special? Can you define special? Like wholly unique? Probably not. Yes. Is is there a is there a unique triangle? This, this, I mean, in the sense that a triangle has rules. We could vary the. No. We could vary. We could infinitely vary the angles. I suppose there's great. There's infinite divisions of angles that we could vary. But they would yeah, but still that, that, always sum not, to one eighty. That's not one special triangle. Is the one. Special triangle. Like one that doesn't sum to 180? No, they all got to sum to 180. No, they they right. look different, that look wholly unique. Well, I, I mean, the old, I, I don't, I don't think so. Because if you made a unique one, I could probably copy it, I think is what he's... Yeah, is that saying. where you're going with this? No, no, it's very simple. It's the equilateral triangle. I see. You think about it. It's the only one that has all of its angles equal. All of its sides are equal. Uh, they're all very unique too, in a way. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, we're, no, that, all, that, all, that would make us say shapes, that we're all, all shapes are unique, but only one stands out as really very special. Well, you're saying that it's special because its ratio is is one. I mean, I know that you're a big fan of ratios well, as being significant. So well, is this... it's, it's got to be that. Well, it is actually the it's it's. It's a very special quantity in, in Newton's theory of gravity. It's very, it's very special. Uh, Leibniz, Leibniz said, uh, said that, uh, you know, if we're asked to think of a triangle, there's only one we can really think of that's special. It's the equilateral triangle. On a lot of levels, it makes sense that if there was a bang, that the primordial state would be super special and ordered and regular. So in, in my simplest model of the universe, which is non-trivial, and the mathematics is actually very non-trivial when you actually have to prove all these things, if you ask, is there any conceivable state with which the universe might begin with just three particles, it's as an equilateral triangle. But isn't the equilateral triangle a particularly stable conformation? Wouldn't you expect it to start from something that is that that is able to give the push for all of the motion that comes afterwards, no, rather no, but, than something that's but but you're 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 very speaking very anthropocentrically. You're putting your own. Think of how difficult it was for scientists to arrive at the mathematical concept of a force. So uh, people thought of force because you have this feeling when you push something hard. And this led people to think that, the, that you had to have a force to keep things moving, that without a force, things would, 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 would come to rest, which is what they do because of friction. But the, it right, the it, really, isn't that a side? Finish, let me just finish. Right, it was right, one right. of the really great uh, discoveries, insights of Isaac Newton was that actually the natural state of motion is to keep moving in a straight line. And it's only when 
there's things called forces that change that motion. And the definition of a force is a very sophisticated thing. It was one of the really great discoveries in the history of science. So uh, you don't you you don't have a, a force to get things going. They are going, so to speak. There are differences. They they're just there are just different. The world is just differences. Each instant of time, the universe is different from an earlier one or a later one in the normal way of thinking about it. But here we're talking about the first instance. Yeah, isn't giving well, it a birth, isn't it giving it a birth, the ultimate anthropomorphization? No, ways. not necessarily. How because, come? because uh, what about numbers? Well, numbers one, are very... Three, I mean, one, two, three, there's a, there's a first integer. Well, you could go negative, that's, right? That's not, that's, that's not anthropomorphic. That well, to the extent that we count and so forth, we're familiar with it. But uh, we 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 can certainly think of of numbers, and there's a first number one. But you can have less than. I mean, if 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 you have an apple and you have one apple, and then you cut it in half, you can still conceive of it being less than a whole. Well, right, and so that's very. But then, but then you've made then you've made two things. And 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 you're you're talking about that. Unless but, you have an it, ontological category for apple, but, and you're like, well, the apple is the whole, and now I have part of the whole, right? Because you don't yeah, have two but, apples at that point; you have but, two but, halves of an apple. But in mathematics, they abstract away from the individual details, and they just think of of numbers in the practical way that we do. And there are key properties. I mean, if you have apples and you don't start taking a knife and cut them in half. You count them in one way and you get a value. Then you come back, you mix them around, you count them again, and you find that you've got the same number. And so will Michael. And so these are very profound properties of numbers. And they start with one, and then you put another one to, and you get two, and then it goes on. And you can immediately see that there's no way to stop. You just go on up to infinity. And there's this. There's all sorts of extraordinary things. Then you can prove that there's as many even numbers as there are all of the integers. There's as many of them as there are even. Galileo knew these things. And there's just as many <laughs> that are all. It, it, it all comes out of numbers, but the starting one, the first one, is one. So when we're talking about shapes, the, the, the analog of the number one in numbers is the equilateral triangle for shapes of triangles. In 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 a sim in a rather similar sense, it makes it makes sense that it would be a good starting point for a story. But I'm not sure how we'll ever be able to rule out the idea that there were other stories that preceded this story. Right, because if you if you look at if you look at nature, and let's say you have an apple tree, and you're attempting to count apples, you have to set some arbitrary point where you're like, this is an apple and this is not yet an apple because at some point the bee will fertilize the blossom and the blossom will start to produce the fruit. But there's an entire continuum of time where the apple is not yet what you would call an apple. It's certainly nothing that you would eat. Yeah, Can you yeah, count I'm, the I'm, flowers I'm, as an apple? Like there's, there's just this infinite, in nature, there's this almost infinite ability to... The integers are an artificial construction that we have created in order to be able to categorize and put things into bins and count, but that's not how nature looks or works. You don't have well, a single if crystal. I may, if I may disagree with you, of next course, time please. You go to a, next time you go to the grocers, 
I think you will find that you can count the number of apples you want to buy. When but that's inside the, of a human say, system. I want to have six apples, please. They'll give you six apples. Yeah, that's entirely artificial. Yeah, that's artificial. Entirely. What I'm saying is that if you, if I put you in front of an apple tree and I'm like, tell me how many apples there are here, in order for no, you to no, count I'm the sorry, apples. Getting, look, if you don't mind, we're getting rather distracted from things. Uh, I thought I was being asked about things, not being lectured by you two. Well, I mean, I this is this is something no, that I'm I sorry. deeply. Sorry, it's fair enough, but but I think I think it's going a little bit more than I want to go in that direction. As you wish, as you wish. No, no, sorry, but I am used to being asked to appear to talk about what my ideas are, not to be lectured on what you think about the universe. Oh, well, that's the point of the show. The show is to bring people who have developed ideas about the universe and to put our uh, own ideas uh, down uh, and to have it... Yeah, we want to have a conversation. Right. Well, you, yeah. di you, didn't, you didn't warn me about that. You've uh, taken sorry, yeah, we, we just want to have a conversation and, about it. I'm sorry my patience was getting a bit short. Now, you can show this if you like, and you can let your viewers make of you what you like, whether I'm being rather arrogant in saying I don't want to continue the discussion going along in those lines, which I would frankly describe as nitpicking, if you know what that means. My, my, I know my, what an apple is when I see it, and I know how to count apples. My point is that we know how to count apples because we have created these edges for for how we, you, you can count an apple because you encounter it in a specific environment. And when we start to look back to things where we talk about the origin of the universe, or we start to talk about the way that nature fits into this integeric descriptor, this, inter this integer bin, I, I come from a biological background, right? My, my, my expertise is the soft, squishy things. And so I spend a lot more time thinking about the apple tree than I do thinking about the integers. And so when I speak to mathematicians, I, 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 I have to stand in front of them and I have to be like, look, I understand that this is mathematically valid and has great mathematical depth. And I understand that this is a way of interpreting the world. However, I must ask you to look at the world and then to recognize that there is a process of putting this, this shell upon it. It is like the box that you spoke of, where it's like, well, you can only measure entropy if you have a box. And I'm like, well, you can only really measure an integer if you also have a box. Mm. And the box is the green grocer. The box is the table with the apples on it. If you walk to the tree and you're like, how many apples you would then have to go through this agonizing process of, okay, well, what do we call an apple? Where does the apple begin? How many apples, is, is the apple that's down on the ground beneath the tree still considered an apple? Is, is the flower an apple? At what point, it, it's, this, it's this infinite splitting of, of, of the integer. And so when, when the mathematician says, we can look at the universe and the universe has integers and there is the one. And I'm like, well, biology doesn't seem to obey that. And if you look well, at the I, atom... I, do you mind if I say something? Please, please. Yes, yes, sorry, yes. Uh, first of all, I would say at, at, there's a good practical level that there's a more or less continuous skin which defines an apple. And that goes, I understand, for all of the cells in biology. The great thing is that they have a membrane. 
So I think at a practical level, there is a very good distinction of when you have a, a, an individual entity. It may break down at certain times, that's it. But the point about physics as opposed to biology, and I'm not under, against biology, it's absolutely fascinating. In many ways, it's much more interesting than, than physics. At the level of physics, physicists have to work with numbers. And, and, and work with them. And they've had phenomenal success up to now. We wouldn't be talking to each other in this incredible way if physicists and engineers did not use numbers. This is absolutely true. And so the point... Yeah, yes, yes. So what I'm saying is when I make a model of the universe, I have to be allowed to use numbers. Ab absolutely. No, no, nobody, else, nobody else is trying to describe the universe without in some form using mathematics and very often it in nearly always it involves numbers they use uh, uh, art and you mentioned at the end of your book which i really loved that people also use art and poetry and music to apprehend the universe and oh, yes. you you allude to perhaps that's even a more i don't want to say better but a, a more reasonable way to apprehend what's happening uh, i i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, Deny that. No, no, that's fine. I mean, biology, art is all, and maybe I, I wouldn't underestimate art, underestimate art at all. It may be getting much closer to the real deep things of, of life and the universe. So I, I wouldn't in any way uh, disagree with that. But mm, if we're that. talking about trying to make a physical model of the universe, I think it's going to be impossible to do it without some numbers and some geometrical structures and so forth. Modern physics is about very sophisticated development of geometrical notions and things like that. And that's at the level at which we're talking about, whether we get into bigger things about art and, and, uh, and, and, and more, that's another matter. Well, and the, 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 the reason that we kind of went down this, this line of questioning is that there's an assumption that is present in the Big Bang and in this complete explosion, which is that there's there's a crystalline beginning, and so it begins at the one. And to me, that seems like the germ of spontaneous generation. And this is not particular to your theory, this is particular to the theory of the Big Bang that, as I have always heard it, which is that you have a point that just simply is. And it yes, is well, yes, just as the equilateral triangle is in mathematics, in geometry. But the math, but the mathematical conception is not connected to reality. Reality is reality is in a in a way that is distinct from a, a mental image of an equilateral triangle. Like well, this, we, this object like is the equilateral is, triangle is, can map onto material reality, but yeah, yeah. but it's uh, it's obviously just an approximation of material reality, right? Like the phys yes, like yes. physics is actually studying material surface bound objects, right? And the geometry is great for describing those and and working with uh, their relational uh, distortions and interactions between one another. But ultimately, there is a material reality that physics and mathematics is describing. And so, how does the equilateral triangle come? to be fully formed like it, it's almost like you know it, it, was, was it athena that's the that sprang from i don't know my greek mythology very well but the head of zeus there we go so fully is armored fully armored uh but 
No, I mean, I myself, I'm I rather inclined to the platonic view of mathematics, that there are these mathematical forms. But I don't think that that's an essential part of, of, of the discussion. Hmm. I mean, it's physics is always only producing some mathematical description, trying to, dis- to produce a mathematical description of, of the universe, of phenomena. And the, the fact that it is doing rather well is confirmed by its ability to make predictions, which are then verified by experiments, to an absolutely extraordinary degree. The, the success of Einstein's theory of general relativity is absolutely amazing how well it's been verified. Uh, so this is this has to be taken seriously. But that, that's, I don't think, up for debate. Right, the mathematics and and the the mathematical physics has been excellent at predicting, but it seems like there's this cleavage between the 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 macro world and the micro world. What do you make of the the disconnect between Einsteinian physics and quantum physics? Do you think? Well, that, that, well it, that's an unsolved problem. Do you do you have any insight on why it has been so difficult to solve? Do you because usually from from and this again is a very you know basic perspective, but I, I think yeah, it's interesting to me because they're both very wonderful quantitative descriptions of what's happening, one at a large scale, one at small scales, but the underlying mechanical explanation for what's causing those descriptions to unfold. Like in biology, we're always, I actually did my PhD in biophysics, so I'm always looking for a mechanism, right? One material is causing another to deform, which is maybe storing some spring potential energy, which then can do some other action. But we don't really understand how that works with atoms. And so, if we don't understand how that works with atoms, how can we possibly explain what causes the Einsteinian description to be so, or the quantum description to be so? Would you agree with that? Well, we, I mean, these, these are very deep mysteries. What, what we do know is that both of them, in their separate domains, work extraordinarily well, and nobody has yet succeeded in, in putting them together into a coherent thing that, that fits together. Um, and I, I wouldn't pretend to know how to do it. I mean, one always thinks about it. Uh, they're very marvelous. I think there are possibly. I, I think. I mean, I, I'm not. A, I'm not pessimistic. I think one day it will be. They will be put together. Um, but it's clearly a huge task because some of the best brains in the world have been working on it for a good sixty years and haven't succeeded in getting anywhere. Hmm. Well, hear that, kids? There's plenty of work to be done. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, all right, do you have any more? Uh, you got another book in the pipes? Are you, uh, are you, are no, you, no, I'm are trying you? to write papers at the moment. Okay. What, um, are you, what are you focusing on? Well, I'm trying to develop at the moment this uh, idea that the universe does, in, in the simplest model, it begins as an equilateral triangle. Uh, but basically, that the, that the fundamental the most basic law of the universe is that it that it's gets ever more complex ever more structured that it that it's going so this is very this is a very diff this this i mean sure a lot of if serious scientists i mean professional scientists are 
are watching me, listening to this, they'll say I, I'm, I'm just hopelessly optimistic because the, the great belief is that the end of the universe is the heat death. Uh, so if I come along and saying <laughs> it's just going to go on getting better and better, they'll say this chap's off his rocker. Uh, but at least uh, it's we've got some mathematical uh, evidence that that might not be such an incorrect idea. And I think it, it does go back to this way that thermodynamics was discovered in a box. And if the box is not there, then it's a completely different story. And that that's that's hopeful. So I'm I'm working away on ideas like that. I have several collaborators now uh, uh, working with them, and I'm enjoying that. Um, I mean, I I appreciate more than anything the the optimism of your theory, which is that there is this sense that the whether or not we agree about what came before the equilateral triangle, I do think that there is a great need to have a perspective on the world that is not that this will all turn to ashes and all will be forgotten and that there's no arc towards increasing complexity and that it's just this meaningless wash that we find ourselves in that, you know, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust. I, mm. I think that that it's almost an atheistic conception of the world, of the universe, which is that there is no birth there, or there there is no, there is nothing better. No future. There's no future. Yeah, there's nothing that will come later. And I think that it's hauntingly awful for people to live in a universe that is slated to to die, mm. where the things there's that they no do. It's cast a, it's cast a pall since the discovery of thermodynamics. <laughs> it, it, it's been a, it's been a, <laughs> a nasty thought ever since. Uh, so um, it would, I've, I'm not going to claim that the theory is right, but I think it's got a chance uh, because I think the, the the idea of the heat death is questionable because of the key requirement to on which it's based uh, which is that entropy that entropy can be defined in the universe if the entropy i'm not saying entropy can't be defined in in my study to a good approximation you you could uh, because in uh, on the earth thermodynamics definitely works very well because the atmosphere is retained gravity holds the atmosphere and the earth uh, we understand very well how the heat comes from the sun and then goes off. Some There's a heat flow through the earth and that's what creates all the plants and keeps us alive and things like that. That's all perfectly described by thermodynamics. So there's nothing wrong with that part of the theory. But if it's the correct description of everything and why you've got that backdrop behind you, uh, it's another matter. And I think that the world's the the world needs the the expansion of possibility because science is often limited by the beliefs that become fixed, which is kind of unexpected because you you from the outside. When I went into science, I looked at it from the outside and I believed that you know I would go to graduate school and I would enter into this place where we would be able to sit and discuss 
the 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 high and mighty ideas about the universe and everything and we would we would seek to understand something about nature and what i found very often is that there are heuristics that are necessary in order to be able to do science the way that we do it now which is that you accept that there is this chunk of information which is that you start from and these are the things that can't be questioned like in biology for a long time it was the central dogma right dna to rna to protein there's no alternatives and then it took many many decades for people to start realizing that well it's actually much more complicated than that it can go back in other ways and those those beliefs for a long time were very lim- self-limiting because you arrive and you feel, and if you start to be like, well, what if RNA doesn't work this way? What if it works in a different way? You're laughed out of the room. You're told your ideas are stupid. You're blocked from pursuing it because it's unfashionable and because there is consensus. And it takes a very long time for people to come to realize that science is about possibility. And for some reason, it seems to be mostly we find older professors, older scholars are the ones that have really cultivated the sense that there are theories that are the standard and yet just because they are the standard does not mean that they are right. No, no, I, I would, I totally agree with that. And after all, I'm trying to do exactly the same myself. So I would agree with that. No, no, it's, 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 uh, that, that, that's sort of the sociology of science and, and, and what human beings are like. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of reasons behind that. Uh, and there's also, the way science has to be funded and things, there's there's all sorts of explanations for, for why that is. But I, there I completely agree with you that these things, one should never close down ideas and, and, and so forth. Have, uh, you, have you encountered a lot of pushback against your ideas or has it been, because you have a lot of collaborators and you, know, you publish a lot of papers, you've written a lot of books, but have you had difficulty in... in when presenting your ideas to the larger scientific community? Well, I've only presented them to a, a certain number of groups. I mean, I've given plenty of lectures, and, and I think um, it's a, I mean, these most recent ideas that are put in the Janus point and are still developing, that's much too early to get any serious feedback on things. What I do find encouraging is that. Uh, young physicists who are just finishing their undergraduate studies or even halfway through find it very easy to understand the ideas um, uh, because they're what we call shape dynamics. It, it's not difficult to understand. It's basically not much more than I say than the shapes of triangles changing, and that's not difficult to understand. Um, so... Um, I think the, the the paper that was published in 2014 about uh, it did it that's the Janus point wasn't coined in that but challenging this idea that uh, it's the growth of entropy which is defining the direction of time that's got pretty that was very well received I mean that that got an editor's selection in the physical review journal physical review letters which is reckoned to be the top physics journal in, in the world uh, so it was well received in that and and that paper's getting quite a lot of citations already and several others of my papers have got a goodly number of citations so I mean I'm recognized as a serious scientist in that sense there and uh, 
can't ask for much more than that. Um, Do you if think these really radical ideas about total explosions and things like that, that that's going to be bigger. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that's may or may not come to something. Well, I look forward to seeing what it does come to. And I, I appreciate you bearing with our biological perspectives. I think we tend to, you know, talking about the universe, it's all about stories, um, stories for what came and what will come. And we tend to see, I, I think we honestly, are, we look at the world and we see biology everywhere. We see uh, biological forces, if you will. And so I think that it's hard for us to not look at ideas about the whole universe and think about them as if biology instead of physics is the more fundamental science at play. And so I appreciate your patience with us, and uh, I'm glad you stuck it out. It's been really good to talk to you. Okay. All right. Yes. Well, I know biology is fascinating, but I think that the story really, just finish on that, I mean, I think most scientists would say mathematics comes first and there are certain truths in mathematics which just are truths then there's physics which is uh, cannot be proved the result the theories can't be proved but they can be disproved and it does it is making progress and and then quite how one puts biology in that thing but i think one has to say biology probably comes in in the third position for it's not to say in any way to diminish biology. i'm sure we're in the minority here yeah, I have a, yeah. I have a, I have a feeling that what biology does is it comes and it disturbs the laws of mathematics because it's very hard to predict human behavior based off of mathematics, like game theory, right? Game theory was a very, very beloved way of modeling rational actors, and it falls apart when you realize that humans aren't rational actors and they're they're motivated by beliefs and wills and spirits and ghouls and all kinds of other things that you can't model mathematically and so no I, I would agree with you with that but that doesn't necessarily rule out that to a large extent they are governed by physical processes it's a that's quite a ball of wax Dante yeah I think thank you so much thank you so much Dr. Barber okay all right bye then bye bye